Uh, we are looking at the Ten Commandments. We are, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and so we've seen the story of how God has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt from bondage to belonging, and then uh, we're going slowly through the Ten Commandments, which are the heart of God's instructions uh, to his people about how to live in a distinctive way uh, that reflects loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, so we're, uh, we've looked at the first two commandments uh, the last two weeks, and today we're looking at the third one, which is verse 7. And uh, we've seen, uh, we're going to see for each of these commandments how they're a manual that reflect God's design for us, how he's created us in his image uh, to flourish, how they're a mirror that shows us our sin and our need for uh, forgiveness, and how they're a window that shows us Jesus, our Savior, and then how they're a guide that shows us God's path. Um, so that's sort of the, uh, the outline we're looking at the Ten Commandments through. Uh, but today we're looking at uh, verse 7. So let me read to us uh, verse 7 of, of Exodus chapter 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know, a curious fact about human beings is that each one of us has a name. And our names matter to us. Now, in theory, we could identify ourselves in different ways. We could identify ourselves by numbers. We could say, I'm human being, 8,065,764,971. That's approximately the number of human beings on Earth right now. Or we could identify ourselves by a list of physical characteristics. Red-haired, blue-eyes, crooked-nosed, hunchbacked, 5'8", resident of Vernon. That doesn't describe any particular person. Don't worry, I didn't have any of you in mind. Okay. We could say to one another, don't worry about my name, just call me Hey You and point at me. I'll get it. But we don't do any of those things. Right? When we introduce ourselves, we normally say, hello, my name is so-and-so, what's your name? It's one of the most common questions we ask one another when we meet a new person. Now, naming practices vary uh, from one culture to another. In most Western cultures, the individual name comes first, and then there's maybe a middle name and then a last name. In most Asian cultures, it's the reverse. The last name comes first, the family name is, is, is at the beginning. Uh, in some cultures, people have first, middle, and last names. Others, there's only two names. In others, some people I've met have four or more names. But no matter those differences, we all have a name. And our names are important to us, not only because they're convenient, they're more convenient than remembering numbers or long lists of physical characteristics, but they're more than just a convenient tool our names represent who we are at the deepest level. They represent our personal identity, our essential character, even our family history. And in most cases, our names were given to us by our parents when we were born. Now, some people change their names uh, after a particularly life-altering event, such as adoption, marriage, divorce, religious conversion, or some such thing, and their new name carries the significance of that life-shaping event. Uh, but wherever our names have come from, or however they might have been uh, altered over time, 
When somebody cares to learn your name, we feel like they care about us. If someone remembers our name after only having met us once or not having seen us for a long time, we feel honored. If someone who has spent a lot of time with us repeatedly forgets our name or calls us by the wrong name or butchers the pronunciation of our name, we might eventually feel a little bit annoyed or disregarded, right? Even if we can't fully explain why in all these ways our names matter. And the commandment we're looking at this morning tells us that just as our names matter to us on a human level, God's name also matters to him. And that leads us to our first point, uh, namely, how is this commandment a manual that shows us God's good design? And the answer is it shows us that just as we want to be known by our names and not just by a number or hey you, God wants us to know him by his name. God wants us to know his identity, his character. Uh, one of the first things God did when he began to reveal himself to the people of Israel, uh, we saw this back in Exodus chapter 3, is he revealed his name to Moses. Uh, in fact, first he calls Moses by name. Moses, Moses. God doesn't say, hey you, over there. God calls Moses by name. He knows our names. He honors us by calling us by name. In the New Testament, Jesus says the good shepherd calls each one of his sheep by name. And so God knows our names, but God also wants us to know his name and to know what his name represents, his identity, his character. So God said to Moses, I'm the God of your ancestors. I've heard my people's cries. I've come to bring them out of Egypt and I'm sending you. And Moses says, so if I go to the people and they say, what's, what's his name? What should I tell them? And God doesn't say, you can't know my name. I'm the mysterious and unknowable one. God doesn't say, I'm the force. E equals MC squared. I'm the equation that holds the world together. No, God tells Moses his personal name. I am who I am. It's a name that's sometimes pronounced Yahweh. Yahweh has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus, is, thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That's from Exodus 3, 15 and following. So the God of the universe did not reveal himself in an abstract and impersonal way. God revealed himself so that we might know him personally, by name. And now, what was important about God's name? You might say, well, was it a secret code or sort of a, a set of syllables or words that you have to learn to pronounce exactly correctly, like a magic spell? No. In fact... We don't actually know exactly how God's name was originally pronounced. And the reason we don't know this is because in ancient Hebrew, there are no vowels. There are only consonants. So the name is Y-H-W-H, -H, if you transliterate the consonants into English letters. Uh, but there's no vowels. The vowels were added in the early Middle Ages, the, between the 6th and the 10th century. So that was thousands of years after this happened. So... You know, Yahweh is sort of our best guess as to how the name of God was originally pronounced. It's usually translated in most English Bibles, the Lord, and it's usually in small capital letters. Um, it appears many times, almost, uh, I think almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. Uh, but when God revealed his name, the Lord, he wasn't revealing a magic word or that could be used to gain power. 
He was revealing his identity, his character. He was saying, I want you to know me personally. I know you by your name, and I'm calling you by your name. Now I want you to call me by my name, to know me personally. Uh, and to know God by name was a great privilege, but it was also a great responsibility because God said to the people of Israel, your purpose, your mission is to spread the knowledge of my name to all the peoples of the earth. And so that's the context in which God gives them this command. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Now, that word take can mean to lift up, to raise or carry, or even to wear like a piece of clothing that you wear. Don't wear the name of the Lord in vain. That word in vain can mean sort of in an empty way or in a meaningless or careless or misleading or deceptive way. So that's why this command is a good one, right? Just as we want to be known personally by our names, God wants us to know him personally by his name. But that brings us to the second point. How is this commandment a mirror that shows us our sin and our need for God's grace? Now, if you ask most people, do you obey this command? Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Most people will assume that you are asking, do you use God's name carelessly in casual conversation? And so most people will give you one of two responses. Some people will say, I'm very careful to never do that. So I only say, oh my gosh, or oh my goodness, or something else that does not use the name of God. Some people say, I only use God's name if I'm praying or worshiping or intentionally talking to someone else about who God is. See, I obey this command. Now, other people will give you uh, a different response. Other people will say, well, honestly, I'm not that careful. Sometimes I do say, OMG, but I don't mean any harm. It doesn't really hurt anybody, so it's no big deal. There are plenty of other things that people say and do that are far more hurtful. Why are people so legalistic about this command? Now, both of these attitudes have the same problem. They start with a very surface level understanding of this command, and then they seek to justify themselves on that basis. But the third commandment is not only warning us against careless speech. I think it is warning us against that, but here are some other things that it warns us against. Uh, number, I'll give you a, a list of several things that we find in different parts of the Bible. So one thing would be saying God has spoken to us when he hasn't. So this is the main theme if you read the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 14 says this. The Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They're prophesying to you the deceit of their own minds. So these people were claiming to deliver God's message, claiming to speak in God's name, but they were making it all up. And this wasn't just a problem back in Jeremiah's day. If you turn on the TV or if you go on YouTube, you can find plenty of preachers who promise that if you will just send $100 or $1,000 or $5,000 to support their ministry, God will shower you with financial blessings beyond what you can believe. That is taking God's name in vain. 
because it's manipulating people for selfish gain by saying that God has promised something when he hasn't. Now, here's another example. Uh, sometimes religious people justify unwise decisions by saying, God led me to do this, or God told me to do this. God led us to this house, even though it's way above our price range and there's no way we can afford the mortgage payments on our current income. I prayed and God told me that this person is the one I should marry, even though my closest friends are raising all kinds of questions and red flags. Now in some Christian groups, if you say, God told me, I was praying and I felt that the Holy Spirit told me, that's the end of the conversation because who's to say that God didn't tell you? But guess what? Conversations should not end there. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 20 says this, don't despise prophecies but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. In other words, impressions and intuitions can be valuable we shouldn't reject them out of hand, but they're not infallible. That means all of our impressions and intuitions and feelings about how God might be leading us need to be measured against the wisdom that God has given us in the Bible. And one piece of that wisdom that's found in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs says, in many counselors, there is safety. In other words, and, and it says a fool thinks he knows what's right all the time. Right? So if we think, I know what's right, and I don't want to listen to anybody else, Proverbs says we're acting like a fool. And Proverbs says part of the path of wisdom that God has given us is to seek out wise advice from, trustworthy, from multiple trustworthy people and to listen to it even, and maybe even especially, if it challenges what we think ourselves. So that's one thing. Uh, that would be taking God's name in vain, saying God has spoken to us when he hasn't. How about another thing? Preaching what we don't practice. <laughs> Romans 2, 21 to 24, the Apostle Paul says this, You then who teach others, don't you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, among the nations, because of you. Many people have become disenchanted with the Christian church, or even with the Christian faith in general, because of, they have seen a lack of integrity among Christian people. It's a serious problem. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Preaching to others what we don't practice ourselves is a form of taking God's name in vain. Along the same lines, making promises and not following through. Leviticus 19.12 says this, You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In other words, that verse is saying, Don't say, I swear to God I'll do it and then not do it. But guess what? In the New Testament, Jesus and the Apostle James take it one step further. James chapter 5, verse 12 says, My brothers and sisters, do not swear, 
This is talking about don't swear oaths, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. So in other words, what James is saying is if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you bear his name. Whether or not you speak it out loud in that particular sentence, you bear his name as a Christ follower. And if you say that you're going to do all sorts of things and make all kinds of promises to people and then don't follow through on them, you're taking God's name in vain. James goes on to give us a better way to speak. He encourages us to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. In other words, to recognize, sure, there are circumstances beyond our control. And we might say, you know what, I'll do my best to get this to you by such and such a date. And sometimes there are circumstances beyond our control that come up and we can't. And we can say, I'm sorry, here's what's happened. You know, I'll keep working on it. Right? So it's not saying we shouldn't make any plans or we shouldn't say, I'll try to do something or we shouldn't volunteer for anything. It's just saying when we commit to something, it's a better approach to say, I'll do my best. Or if the Lord wills, if, as God gives me the strength to do it, I'll do it. But if God gives us the strength to do it, then we need to follow through and not take our words lightly. Okay, so here's another one. Worshiping God uh, half-heartedly and resentfully. Uh, this is one of the main themes of the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. It's a short little book. Uh, so here's a little bit of what Malachi says. Malachi 1.11. From the rising, uh, God is speaking to the people. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. But then Malachi turns to the people and he says, but you say, what a weariness this is. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? What Malachi was saying is you're the people of God. You're called by his name. You're supposed to lead the, all the nations of the world to worship the true God. But when you come to worship God, you complain about it, and you bring stuff that you don't even want. It's you complain and you say, why do we have to do all this? It's so boring, it's so difficult, it's so tiresome. It's sort of, and, and Malachi basically says, this is, you're, what you're doing to God is like donating your trash to goodwill. You're saying, I just want to say I made a donation. So I'm going to give my garbage that nobody's really going to want anyway, and they're going to have to sort through it, and they're going to end up throwing it in a landfill because they won't be able to sell it. That was what the people of Israel were doing. They were bringing their, their, their leftovers, their junk, to the temple and offering it to worship God and saying, see, I brought something. But they had no desire to bring their best to God. They had no desire to worship God from their heart. And so Malachi says to them, stop pretending. Get real. Don't pretend to worship God half-heartedly and resentfully. Now, what about us? Do we seek to give God our best? Or are we just going through the motions half-heartedly and resentfully? Do we look forward to worshiping God together on Sundays? Do we make it a priority in our schedule to come to church as often as we possibly can? Or do we only come if we have nothing more exciting to do? You know, many people show up at church every so often because that's how they were raised, 
And that's what they've always done. And they would feel guilty if they never went at all. But those reasons by themselves will never produce genuine and wholehearted worship of God. Now, if you're here today out of habit or out of tradition or out of guilt or because somebody pressured you to come, my prayer is that you would have a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ and be transformed from the inside out. My prayer is that you and all of us would become more deeply aware of our sin and our need for God and see the, the spiritual darkness and brokenness and, that resides within each one of us and that the light of Jesus Christ would shine upon your heart like the morning sun that shines through a window and gradually wakes you up from a deep slumber and that for the very first time in your life you would find yourself hungering and thirsting for God and for Jesus Christ himself. C.S. Lewis once said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Right? It makes no sense to worship God half-heartedly, resentfully, and keeping it in a very moderate place in our lives. One more, cursing and blaming God. Sometimes people blame God for the consequences of their own foolish decisions. We see this in the beginning of the Bible with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He ate the fruit that God specifically told him not to, and God came to Adam and said, what's up? What have you done? And Adam points at Eve and said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam was saying, God, this is your fault. You sent this person into my life, and she led me down a bad path. God was not very pleased with that response. When we blame God for the consequences, instead of taking responsibility for our own foolish choices, we are taking God's name in vain. And last but not least, if we carelessly throw around God's name like a curse word, as an expression of shock or anger or disgust rather than faith and prayer and worship, we are taking God's name in vain. You see, this command, like all the rest of them, is a mirror. There are a lot of ways to take God's name in vain, and all of us have done so at one time or another, in one way or another, or in more than one way. And this commandment says this is a serious matter. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We are all guilty of violating this command in one way or another. So what hope do we have? Our hope comes from the fact that this commandment isn't just a mirror and a manual. It's also a window. This commandment shows us our Savior, Jesus Christ. How does this commandment point us to Jesus Christ, our Savior? Well, if you go to the New Testament, if you open the first chapter, Matthew chapter 1, it tells the story of Jesus' birth, what we celebrate every year at Christmas. And it highlights two of Jesus' names. First it says, Matthew 1, I think it's verse 21, they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then uh, it says they, uh, she, she called his name, uh, his mother uh, and father called his name Jesus, 
which means the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. So right from the start, the New Testament introduces us to our Savior by name. He is God with us, Emmanuel. He is Jesus, the God who has come to save us. And the name of Jesus is good news for sinful people like ourselves, even people who have taken God's name in vain. Because Jesus has come to save us and come to dwell with us. And if we read on in the New Testament, we see that Jesus' name is powerful. Jesus heals people of sicknesses. He sets people free from evil spirits. He raises the dead to life. He restores people to a right relationship with God. And then he sends out his disciples to do some of the same things in his name. That is with his power and his authority and according to his will. And they do some of the same things. Now here is the irony. When people turned on Jesus, they accused him of violating this very command. They accused him of taking God's name in vain. They accused him of being a false prophet and of falsely claiming to be God. Now the people who condemned Jesus to death were right about one thing. Either Jesus is God, worthy of our worship and adoration, and his name is worthy of the same reverence as the name of God himself, or he was merely human and he violated this command. And in the Old Testament, the penalty for violating this command intentionally and persistently was death. So they were right that it's, it has to be one way or the other. C.S. Lewis put it this way, some people say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely human and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be a dangerous deceiver. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Because Jesus did claim to be the son of God with all the authority and power of God himself. So let me challenge you, have you grappled with that question of who Jesus was and is? It's a very important question. For many years, the Apostle Paul believed that Jesus was a blasphemer who deserved to die. That Jesus, the Apostle Paul believed that Jesus had taken God's name in vain and that anyone who followed Jesus was going down a dangerous road. And so Paul persecuted Christians because he thought that they were leading people down a bad way. And then one day, on the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus himself. He wasn't expecting it at all. And encountering Jesus turned his world upside down. And so Paul stopped persecuting Christians, he started preaching the gospel, and he ended up writing nearly half the books that are in our New Testament. And here's what Paul wrote about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. He writes, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, though he was essentially uh, truly God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or used to his own advantage. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, that's the first half of the story of Jesus that Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself and became a human being and died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. But the second half, 
he continues in the next couple of verses. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, in the Old Testament, the same thing was said of the name of God. Isaiah 45, 23, it said, Before God, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And now the Apostle Paul is saying, Before Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, every knee will one day bow and every tongue will swear allegiance, will, will recognize that he is truly God. So Paul puts Jesus on the same level as God himself. And so this commandment is a window that invites us and calls us to worship Jesus, to call upon his name, to honor and reverence his name and his character, and see him as the God who has come to save us. Finally, uh, this commandment is a guide that shows us God's path. Before Jesus went back into heaven, he said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Did you notice that phrase? We're baptized into the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What that means is that when people get baptized as Christians, it's a kind of naming ceremony. We're identifying with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his name is placed on us. God the Fa we see that God the Father loves us and has received us, that Jesus died for us, that the Holy Spirit has come to fill us, and baptism is sort of a public and symbolic representation of all those realities. And we now bear that name. We wear that name, right, for the rest of our lives. So how should we live as people who bear the name of Jesus Christ, right? If you put your faith in Jesus, uh, then, uh, and, um, you know, baptism represents that, uh, we bear that name. Uh, so let me give us two closing thoughts. Number one, seek to honor God's name in our own lives. And number two, seek the honor of God's name in the world. Uh, so how do we honor God's name in our own lives? Um, well, I do think that we should be more careful in our speech, right? We shouldn't just launch God's name into the air carelessly like a projectile as an expression of surprise or dismay. He's our creator. He's our savior. He's our judge. He's our good shepherd. We should think about who we're speaking to. So instead of just saying, oh God, let's call out to God in prayer. Oh God, have mercy on us and help us. Or let's praise God. Oh God, how great you are. Thank you for being so good to us. We should also be more careful in the commitments we make to other people, right? In J.I. Packer's words, the godly person will make promises cautiously, but keep them conscientiously. So I think probably all of us should be more careful. Let our yes be yes and let our no be no. But I don't think honoring God's name is, is just a matter of sort of controlling our speech more effectively. Honoring God's name has to begin at a deeper level in our hearts. 
Psalm 9, verse 10 says this, Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Uh, the Bible tells a story of a man named Job who lost everything in a series of catastrophes. His property was destroyed, his livestock were killed, his children died, and he was afflicted with a painful disease. And after all those things happened, his wife came to him and said, Curse God and die. And Job refused. And one of the things Job said, he said this, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, Job knew God's name. And he knew God's, he trusted God's character and he held on to God's name and God's character even in pain and anguish and fear and dread. Now, if you read the whole book of Job, Job does not always maintain his composure and his calm confidence. Sometimes Job gets extremely depressed and he speaks out of a very low place. And he's honest and not very filtered. Sometimes he cries out to God in anguish. Sometimes he gets fed up with his friends who talk too much and listen too little. Sometimes he begs God for answers that God does not ultimately give him. God ultimately meets Job and gives him his presence, but he doesn't give Job all the answers to why everything has happened. You see, Job wrestled with God, and he went through some pretty dark places, but he knew God's name, and he held on to it at a heart level, even when his life circumstances brought him to a really dark place. That's what it means to honor God's name in our heart is to hold on to it like Job did. And we can be honest about what we're feeling with God, but Job always held on to the name and character of God. But as we honor God's name in our heart and in the words that come out of our mouth, we're also called to seek the honor of God's name in the world. You know, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, what's one of the phrases we pray? Hallowed be thy name. What does that phrase mean? It means, God, may your name be honored. And it's not just saying, may your name be honored in my own heart, and my own words, my own actions, but it means, hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven. Right? There are many people in the world today, even right here in Connecticut, who have heard Jesus' name used as a curse word more often than in any other way. There are many people who have been confused and led astray by false prophets making false promises in God's name. And many people as a result of that are skeptical of any kind of religion or spirituality at all. Many people in this world have heard Christians say one thing and then seen them do the opposite. How do we introduce people to Jesus Christ so that they would know his name and put their trust in him. It takes time and patience, love and prayer, listening and asking good questions, explaining the gospel, living our lives openly and truthfully, admitting where we fall short because none of us are perfect and relying on the Holy Spirit. Right? But brothers and sisters, let's pray that more and more people would come to know Jesus' name and put their trust in him. 
Let's pray that we would be faithful ambassadors who bear his name wherever we go to everyone that we speak to and everyone that we interact with. Let's join in prayer together. Lord, we thank you for this commandment. Again, we see that it goes a lot deeper than we might originally think. And Lord, we are sorry for the ways that we have taken your name in vain. And we pray that we would honor your name from the heart. And we pray that you might work through us, that others might see your character displayed in our lives and know who you are, both through our words and our deeds, that they too might come to know your name and put their trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.